Hi everyone. I am Ashna and I am Noor. And today in the second episode of Abits a bit of everything we will be interviewing Mel Van den Acker. Mel could you please Good introduce morning, yourself? Everyone. Of course. So my name is Mel van den Acker. Don't worry if you can't pronounce it no one can. And I'm currently a PhD student at the Warwick Business School specializing in behavioral science. I've also been the leader of the British counterpart of a bit which is the Warwick Behavioral Insights team or the WBIT and I also have a blog on behavioral science and personal finance which is called Money on the Mind and I'm a co-host of the Questioning Behavior podcast. So I essentially breathe behavioral science. Thank you so much for that. We're really excited for this episode. In this episode we will be focusing on personal finance and financial practices in India from a behavioral science perspective. We would also like to know your thoughts on cultural shift in the behaviors and their impact on the economy. Sumel, we're so glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. Well, if you had to introduce behavioral economics as a field to a layman, how would you want to describe it? I think behavioral economics is just studying how people make decisions. That's it. <laughs> it's not that complicated. Uh yeah, just just a study of decision making under a, a variety of different contexts or choice architectures, if you will. Right. So we know that you're in the midst of completing your PhD right now, right? What do you plan to do after mm-hmm. that? So I think um I will leave academia. Uh I am very fond of academia, but I think industry is maybe more of a fit for my work style and my personality. So I'd like to go into industry specifically um working for companies that target the consumer finance. sector so a nice intersection of consumer finance and behavioral science so maybe work for a fintech startup or a behavioral science unit within a bank all right great um what are some behavioral science concepts that you feel are not as effective as they are made out to be and it would also be really great if you could talk about some misconceptions surrounding behavioral science practices sure so I think the the main issue with some of the misconceptions which also then immediately tells you whether some uh, concepts are and are not effective is just that you have to be very careful what context you use them in. So there are a lot of things that don't replicate in certain contexts. And when I say in certain contexts I mean the context in which they weren't originally established. This is also something that gave rise to the replication crisis where things, you know, that were established 10 years ago in one context didn't actually replicate 10 years later in a completely different context. This doesn't mean that these findings don't exist. It just means that they do not exist in that context. And I think that that's a key thing to keep in mind that because decision making is so heavily influenced by the context or the choice architecture that it's in that we we can't expect things to keep replicating in completely different contexts because ironically the fact that you have established a finding 10 years ago um or even just one year ago the fact that that finding has now been established is a change in context and from there on we're just making these things incredibly complicated Another ma- massive misconception I think with behavioral economics is that it, that it can solve anything related with regards to behavior. Although this is the study of you know decision making and of how people behave, there are issues which are ingrained much more in uh in the system of how things are working, you know, for example, to actually clarify what I mean with this, is think of structural economic and or socioeconomic inequality. that is not driven by the accumulation of hundreds and millions and you know thousands of people making poor decisions every day you can't nudge yourself out of structural inequality that is not what behavioral economics does so i think it's it's very important to know what the remit is of behavioral science and apply its findings and its teachings in the correct context meaning the context in which they were established Right yeah that makes sense um and like for the next question i think i want to ask something in continuation to that like mm-hmm. with covid we're seeing a paradigm shift right so how has mm-hmm. this changed like the context of your uh, you know research or um various behavioral behavioral science nudges 
Well, I mean, that kind of depends on what you want behavioral science to do with regards to COVID. So if we just look at general research, which is not at all related to the pandemic, the context which we're now seeing is that methodologically, a lot of it has to be shifted online, which from a research perspective, you know, a lot of stuff can be done online. There's There's been great initiatives and there's there's great platforms to do this through. So that in and of itself is not a major issue. What we have seen is that now, obviously, the context in which people live their lives and make their choices has also increasingly shifted online and in the physical space of the home. So people now look at their home quite differently. They relate to their jobs very differently. They relate to their education very differently, as you both know, because, you know, your education so far has been entirely online. And it's a completely and utterly different experience. And that's only talking about people, you know, for who their life or the normality of their life largely continued, but just shifted online. If you now wanted to do a research or study people, you know, who through the pandemic have been furloughed or have lost their jobs. During a pandemic, getting a new job is uh, unsurprisingly difficult. So you, you're suddenly starting to study an entirely different group of people who have an entirely different group of motivations and behaviors associated with them. And it's just such a shift in our baseline that you have to reestablish everything you thought you knew about the current context. Um, I think a lot of old baselines from which um, researchers operated have become invalid throughout the pandemic. Right, yeah. I had a, um, I had a follow-up question. Like, the economy is also transitioning, right? Like, it's transitioned mm -hmm. to a more low-touch form. So what are your thoughts on this trend and how would this impact the consumer behavior? I have a feeling that the pandemic has just slightly sped up a trend which has already been established for at least a decade. So, you know, web shops, moving things online um, with regards to consuming, but also with regards to how we educate people. You know, there's been several very successful MOOCs or MOOCs. I'm not entirely sure how you say it's just an online course, essentially. Um you know, they have been coming up increasingly. Social media consumption has been, you know, constantly increasing. And working online, I think, predominantly the working from home and then being together online environment, I think that is the one, the, the one trend that sped up the quickest throughout the pandemic. I think that out of all the trends I've already mentioned, I think that would be the trend to have evolved the slowest. But it's, it's still, you know, it, it was getting there. It's just been massively sped up throughout the pandemic. And I just think that we have now just glimpsed what before the pandemic might have been 10 to 20 years away. But now because of the pandemic is happening now. So I don't think that what we've seen during the pandemic was necessarily new. I think it was coming anyway. It has just come a lot quicker than we thought it would. Right. So building on to this discussion about stuff that has been happening recently and current trends, there mm -hmm. has been a lot of buzz around cryptocurrency. So mm -hmm. do you feel like it would lead to any impact on investment related decision making behaviors? I think cryptocurrency, especially if you're talking from an investment perspective, is incredibly interesting. Now, I do have to make a couple of, of cautions and, and throw out some definitions here. So cryptocurrency is part of a larger system called DEFI, which stands for decentralized finance. I am a massive proponent of decentralized finance. Um, I think the systems in which it occurs is very interesting. I do think it warrants much more legislation, but as we all know, legislation is at least five to 10 years behind on what's currently going on. Um, so I'm, I'm sure it will be coming eventually, and I'm sure that will be good for DeFi as a whole. I think DeFi is mainly interesting for its lending protocols and the smart contracts. If you don't know what those are, look them up. It's very, very interesting to dive into, but I have a feeling this is a bit beyond the scope of the podcast. But with regards to cryptocurrency itself, I think cryptocurrency, first of all, cryptocurrency is not really dealt with as a currency, which is a very, very confusing. Most people, or at least people who are really into DeFi or into crypto trading, they approach this as digital gold 
This is very often how crypto is referred to, um, which means it's a value holder rather than a quick use currency, for example, like the dollar or the yen uh, or the euro, you know, what have you. And that actually changes completely how you would look at that system. So when you then see how volatile the crypto market is with regards to investing, there are a couple of people, even people I know personally, who got in uh, on the right time, both with Bitcoin, like literally a decade ago, or with Ethereum, say a couple of months ago, they got in on time, they made some good money, they sold out, and now they can pay for their very expensive master's degree, you know? <laughs> so th- they got in on the right time, but there's there's loads of people, you know, with, what you see with you know, Bitcoin, the price is dropping, Ethereum, people aren't entirely sure how much longer this price can keep rising. Um, Dogecoin is... You know, I think Dogecoin is is a great joke. And like by this stage, what we see is that there's new cryptocurrencies every day. And some people are just having a laugh with it, which is perfectly valid, you know, if if you can spare the money. But when it comes to actual people, you know, trying to approach this market as if you were to approach a stock market, keep in mind, it is impossible to determine... um, what the value of the crypto is actually based on it's an incredibly volatile market and if if you're trying to like you know increase your retirement savings through this and you know very little about this market and you're just buying in for the hype especially with money you can't really miss i wouldn't do it i think decentralized finance as a concept is incredibly interesting but I think the hype surrounding crypto, especially because no one actually seems to understand it. And as soon as Elon Musk puts out a tweet, the, an entire currency can just collapse. I find that very problematic, which to some extent, it has to be mentioned. You do see similar behavior in the traditional stock market, but to a much lesser extent. So it's a lot less volatile. It's a lot less get rich quick. But I think the get rich quick mentality with regards to investing is a very, very dangerous mentality to begin with. I had a follow up question, mm-hmm. you know, on on the same topic. So I, I don't uh, I'm not uh, involved in um, mining Bitcoin or <laughs> dealing with any sort of crypto, but I, I have a lot of friends who do so, actually. And when okay. I hear their discussions, you know, they talk about. Um, Shiba Inu coin and Doge coin and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It's all very amusing to me. Like, how does it work? What's what's the what's the psychology behind this? Because like money is something so serious, and then it's floating around like a meme. So how does that happen? <laughs> so <laughs> so I guess one of the things that you have to keep in mind is how this started. So. The start of decentralized finance goes back at least two decades, and so does the initial crypto. At least I think the initial crypto goes back about, about yeah, I think it was early 2000s. So it goes back about two de- uh, two decades, um, and that bit- Bitcoin is relatively old as well. But you have to keep in mind that this was initially started almost from an ideological perspective, because decentralized finance as a concept is an ideology which most people you know don't realize if you're in this market for the you know get rich quick scheme you're not going to realize where this entire concept or where this entire uh, creation actually comes from so defi is an ideological concept in which there is an aversion against the current traditional finance and the traditional banking scheme in which if, if you are into DeFi, there's just too many middlemen charging too high a fee, for example, to exchange um, exchange different current, uh, currencies, you know, exchange uh, lending protocols. So DeFi is quite large on both the exchanges. It's smart contracts and those are used um, to establish lending protocols. I don't think we're very far away from DeFi being able to provide enough uh, collateral to actually have a mortgage. We've seen this with NFTs, so these non-fungible tokens, that there is a lot of perceived value behind certain things. So it, it won't be too long before actual physical collateral, so physical being in the real world and not online, um, is, is going to be able to be associated with things happening in, in the crypto sphere. So that that is a bit, you know, 
that that is where Daffy comes from, just cutting out the traditional middleman because it's just getting too expensive and it's unnecessary. Like just because you want to take out, you know, a loan in the bank or because you want to exchange dollars for yen, you know, why should you pay a traditional bank, you know, or just any type of traditional middleman? Why should you pay them for that? I mean, it's a very, very valid question. Um, so, so that is where DeFi comes from, just cutting up middlemen, making the services cheaper, doing things peer to peer, and just just a general aversion from the from the current organized financial system, which, as an ideology, is completely fair. Now, if you combine this type of ideology with a lot of hype, what happens is that obviously the actual ideology just gets lost or just gets ignored. Um, especially as it turns out that initially with Bitcoin, as that just the value of Bitcoin just kept rising and rising and rising, a lot of people didn't get into that because they support DeFi, but because they support getting rich quick or they saw an economic opportunity or whatever. And then because there are also people who now it has to be mentioned, and I think this is quite important, a lot of people who believe in DeFi and who are supporters of DeFi are people who are really grounded in meme culture. So this is where Shiba coin and, um, or, or however the, the dog species is, is called, uh, and uh, Dogecoin, which is the exact same dog, just called differently, um, because Doge is obviously the, the meme version of this. This is how they came about. And that is just <laughs> and i think you you can argue that this is just you know people being silly or people being stupid about it and just and just you know taking a piss making a joke out of it all but there is and this is something that you know you just mentioned ashna but you you kind of have to ask yourself do you have to take money as seriously as our entire current banking system does. So obviously I study personal and consumer finance. You know, you, you should take money seriously. But sometimes, you know, is it really that bad to have a currency which has a cute dog on the front of it? Like, is that anyhow worse than having the queen printed on it? Or uh, I think soon we'll have Alan Turing printed on our uh, the British banknotes. At least I think that's coming up or to have old ass presidents printed on your notes. Like, you know, is, is it so bad that we turn this into a bit of a joke? I personally don't think it's bad. I don't think, you know, the memification of money is, is what we need to be worried about. I am much more worried about these, these get rich quick uh, structures and some of the, the influencer scams behind some of these currencies. And uh, when I say influencer, I mean people who are big on social media by talking about crypto, by promoting certain crypto, um, by making dealings with this crypto and then, you know, telling their followers to buy that crypto so they themselves can sell at the height, whereas their followers then lose money, which these, these scams have become increasingly frequent. I think that is much more of a concern than, you know, creating fucking Dogecoin and like, looking at a cute dog, making a smirky face, you know? I, I don't care what the currency is called. It's just be a bit wary of who is talking about crypto, why they're talking about crypto. And if they're trying to get you into the crypto market, you should just be very wary of their motivations. Um, but having a bit of fun with it, like, you know, your, your friends are about discussing crypto. Uh, mining crypto is, is, is a bit different. I think there's going to be a lot of legislation surrounding that soon because it's really, really not sustainable. Uh, it has a massive eco impact, uh, which I think uh, especially China currently isn't very happy with because a lot of mining um, plants have moved to China because the electricity is cheaper. But obviously, it doesn't really matter where you move your plant. Um, this this is eating up a lot of energy. It's not sustainable. And with regards to you know living a greener, more sustainable life and giving our planet the chance to recover or at least partially recover, this isn't exactly the way forward. But there is, um, I'm pretty sure, the Ethereum 2.0 project is looking at the becoming more sustainable and being friendlier to mine and to use um, through transactions by just having much more power and a much higher capacity. 
so we'll we'll see how that goes. But as crypto stands, you know, it, I I think it's very difficult to be both an environmentalist and a crypto miner or a crypto trader. I think those two things they uh, they stand perpendicular to each other, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I I agree with everything that you said. I mean, I even I have a lot of friends that sort of tried to have fun with it, but they mm-hmm. couldn't really. Like even I bought like about like some Shiba Inu coin worth five hundred rupees. It wasn't much. with like yeah by the diff but anyway what i wanted mm-hmm. to ask you was that a lot of my friends couldn't actually buy cryptocurrency for the very reason that in india you know a lot of our money like at least for the teenagers is you know sort of handled by our parents we don't have part time jobs while we're you know pursuing our educational goals or mm-hmm. all of our finances are handled by our parents they give us pocket money right we are like very mm-hmm. dependent on them that way or even for our uh, you know marriage for that matter so in this sense financial behaviors in india are quite intertwined right so what mm-hmm. are your what are your thoughts on this from a behavioral science perspective like what could have led to this oh what could have led to this i mean in general i i don't think when looking at india or slightly more collectivist cultures uh to to put it more broadly i i don't think this is a behavior or a a context which which is only focusing on on financial behaviors i mean india being um largely still a collectivist culture means that all behaviors are very much intertwined with each other and it's it's not surprising that finance would be one of them now obviously most of the the studies that we've seen regarding consumer finance and personal finance uh any type of finance really they do focus predominantly on the states and western europe meaning that you know you have insights on how individual individualistic cultures handle their money and it is completely different of course from how collectivist cultures would handle their money because in that case the decision maker with regards to that money is the person who distributes so very often the head of the family and if the head of the family is making choices for present and and future money division for not just themselves but for a family as a whole not only are you dealing with a much larger horizon because obviously you know the head of the family tends to be quite a bit older than the the latest or the newest beneficiary so you then have to take their horizon as the longest horizon which can span several decades which is not something we very often see um in individualistic cultures per se but also the fact that you would have to make financial decision making or that you would have to make financial decisions uh on behalf of someone else and especially if you have to do this for an entire family which is you know on behalf of a lot of someone else's that this becomes very very complicated especially if you know distributing resources to one person impacts how the resources are distributed to another person and what is decided that the first person should do with that money can actually then impact what the second person ought to be doing with that money or what they want to do with that money and as such this is a much more complex system but given the collectivist culture this is exactly what was expected with regards to this type of decision making so i'm not surprised it happens it's just it would be incredibly difficult to study right i mean this is a question that's not just i think limited to behavioral science it it falls in the ambit of a lot of different fields you could look at it from a sociology perspective mm-hmm. psychology perspective maybe in from maybe even from philosophy or perspective yeah. of philosophy yeah um i i had another question so you recently uh, created a video about the pain of paying right and mm-hmm. noor and i we were just you know having a discussion about it and we thought it was really interesting and we would love it if you could talk a little more about it yeah sure um <laughs> is a nice segue from uh, from crypto i suppose so the pain of paying is a concept from 1996 um outlined by Ophelsellemeyer who was a PhD student under George Lewinstein who i think every behavioral scientist or behavioral economist knows and he brought forward the concept of the pain of paying now the pain of paying is all the predominantly negative feelings associated with having to pay for something now as he established that concept he also established that it is quite easy to influence the pain of paying now there are a couple of ways um of doing so one of them is risk 
So if you're paying for something, how likely is it that you're actually going to obtain the object? So for example, think of a lottery ticket, um, paying for lottery tickets, you know, already knowing the outcome. So knowing that you're either going to win less or more than the price of the lottery ticket um, influences, obviously, how much, how negative you feel about paying the ticket. Whereas if you don't know the outcome, paying for a lottery ticket is actually a lot less painful because you, you, you still have the hope that you might win. Now, another really important aspect of the pain of paying is timing. So if you pay, if you obtain a good or service, but you have to pay for it immediately, the reward or the positive feelings that you get from actually buying a good or service and getting it um, are then lessened by the pain of paying. So how much negative feelings you're experiencing whilst obtaining the good or service. Now, the credit cards actually severs this tie. So as soon as you obtain a good or service on your credit card, what happens is that you immediately get the good or service. So you get all the happiness from obtaining that in the moment. And as you know, with a credit card, you just pay the, the debt you now have on the credit card much, much later on. So maybe at the end of the month, um, maybe you try postponing repaying the debt for even longer. So now what happens is you have all of the pleasure at the start and all of the pain uh, of paying at the end uh, of whenever you're, you're repaying the debt. So these things are then suddenly completely split. Uh, so the pain of paying at the end is quite large, but at least you have the full experience of the reward and the happiness at the start. Now, having already mentioned the credit card and this aspect of timing, OFA found that there are several different levels of pain associated with several different payment methods. So cash is actually the most painful method of payment out there. And the reason for that is really, really simple. So as soon as if I want to pay for something and I have to use cash, it means I have to pay immediately. So even though I'm getting a good or service, you know, and I'm getting happiness from that, it is immediately lessened by the pain of actually having to pay. Now the pay with cash is like I said, concurrent. So you immediately have to pay, but you also have to hand something over physically. Like I physically have to get the notes out of my wallet, hand them over, maybe get some change in return, maybe not. But it's, it, it's a very physical process. So I can feel and see that I'm losing a physical resource. Now, on top of that, with cash, it actually has the amount of money that you're, so it's, it's actual value. Uh, the note is on it, you know, it's a 10 pound, 20 pound, 50 pound, 100 pound note. Uh, although I can't say I know many people who still pay with 100 pound notes. Um, so you know exactly how much you're losing. And these three things, so concurrency, physical, and uh, value denotion, these are the three cornerstones of making a payment method very, very painful. Now, if these three things are the most important thing to cause pain, every other payment which lacks one of these or lacks all of these is as a result much less painful. So with the credit card, the credit card is not physical. It's not, you know, I hand something over and I get less back in return. Like, no, you're not going to go into a store and have and spend half of your credit card balance and then only get half of your credit card back. You know, that's not how this works. Um, so credit card is not physical. A credit card does not denote value. You can't see on the credit card itself. So on the plastic card, how much money is still on it or how, or how large your balance is, how much in debt you already are. It's not how it works. And it's also not concurrent, as I told you in the previous example. So as a result, spending on a credit card is a lot less painful. And so it is actually much easier. And as a result, people tend to spend a lot more on a credit card and they spend more frequently. And they uh, they maybe give in to their impulses uh, every, every, you know, so often, whereas with cash, you know, you can't. Another key example with cash is, for example, that there is, there's a limit on cash. You can only spend a 50 pound note once. And if you want to buy something which is more than 50 pounds, you can't. Whereas with a credit card, and to some extent also with a debit card, if you have an overdraft associated with that account, you can spend more than you currently have in the bank, which has led to some serious problems with regard to consumer finance. Now, if we then look into slightly more modern uh, payment methods, because, you know, debit and credit or cash is not exactly modern. Um, if we look more at contactless payments, uh, where you don't even have to put in the PIN code, or if we look at entirely mobile payments that either go through neobanks such as Revolut and Monzo, or just you know an entirely app setup such as M-Pesa, 
what we then see is that there is no physical representation of that money. There, there is no physical value holder associated with it. It's all just numbers on the screen and it all goes through your phone as a device. Now, luckily, what you see with a phone is that because a phone is also a financial tracker device, you, know, you can have online banking tools on this. You can have PFM tools installed on your phone to see where your money is going. But again, it's not physical. Often, it's, it is not with a limit. It doesn't have an actual limit on it like cash does. And as a result, again, spending becomes so much easier because you constantly have access to that type of money. And this can be incredibly problematic. So what we see is, to very quickly summarize this, the more painful a payment method is, the less you spend, the less frequently you spend, the more aware you are of your spending and the less likely you are getting into debt, the less painful the payment method is, then the opposite is true. And you're much more likely to overspend, spend more frequently, forget how much you've already spent and get into debt, which is obviously not what you want. Right. So you spoke about the pain of paying and it's interesting because despite, you know, the, the pain of paying and despite the fact that with the lockdown, um, a lot of things moved online and digital payments rose, we still see that in India, cash is king. People love to pay with cash and digital payments are still not favored over cash payments. So that's something very interesting and i i feel like this this has to do with i mean what are your thoughts on why this could be a trend in india it's a very very good question so there are a couple of countries in the world of which i'm pretty sure india was one um so if i remember correctly i think it was one of the scandinavian countries and knowing what they're like, I'm gonna say it was Sweden, uh, but you, you can you can pick any other Scandinavian country to be quite honest. Um, so I think I'm pretty sure it was Sweden. So let's just say one of the Scandies, uh, Canada, and the Canadian government and the Indian government, who have made pledges or who have made comments to indicate that they had a very large interest in shifting all of their money online and having an entirely online payment system. And when I initially heard that, like I, I understand that there's drawbacks to cash from an organizational perspective. Um, there is a lot of money laundering happening through cash. There is a lot of black market transactions happening to cash. Tax evasion is very, very simple on cash. It's much more difficult in, a, um, in an online system. And obviously, you know, cash has to be stored physically cash has to be transported and of course you know without cash most of these bank heist movies which i have to say that i do thoroughly enjoy you know are not possible so i i understand fr from a safety perspective uh from a from an operational perspective you know from a from a legal perspective i fully understand why a lot of countries would want to go cashless however nothing bears out that this is a good idea from a consumer perspective. So there is research out there, you know, which, which has a large focus on the pain of paying, indicating that, you know, cash is good for you. Cash is a budgeting friendly tool. Cash means you can keep track of where your money is going, but you have to actually keep track of it yourself. You have to be actively invested in your own money management rather than having apps track it for you. And unsurprisingly, this means that you spend less and you're more aware of what's actually going on in your finances. This is not very surprising. Now, I think with regards to certain cultures and certain um, people and maybe countries as a whole who have not accepted online payments and who are still on cash, I think a key thing that they have in common is that they are from countries which are incredibly technologically driven, which is ironic. Um, because online payment systems that are, are definitely with it, feasible within these countries, but they're simply rejected by the population, uh, which I think is very interesting. But what we also see here is that there is a strong focus on managing your money properly and living within your budget and not spending beyond your means and being very careful and very smart about your money. 
Now, I wouldn't want to uh, say that, that I know for a fact that this is the case in India, because quite frankly, I don't know. But there is a European equivalent of this, which is Germany. So Germany as a society is incredibly technologically advanced. It is within Western Europe, so that was to be expected. But what we see there is that very often, even if you walk into an Aldi, uh, which is just a grocery store, very often the cashiers won't even accept card and you have to pay with cash. Now keep in mind, Aldi is not just a German grocery store. I think Aldi you can find throughout most of Europe. So we're dealing with a European chain grocery store or supermarket, if you will, which in this specific country almost refuses to accept anything other than cash. It's the same in restaurants. It's the same in bars. Um, public transport is, is also still largely cash-based. And then looking at this mass, you know, Germany is technologically advanced. It's a first world country. And this, this is just very, very strange. But you have to keep in mind also when you look at Germany's history that there is, because Germany has had, you know, Germany's had quite a, quite a wild history. But if you look at it from an economic perspective, a lot of people in Germany, you know, they, they've known poverty. They've known incredible and swift changes in their economic systems and their economic prosperity. And they know that, you know, it might be gone tomorrow. I'm, I'm not saying that Europe is likely to have another war, at least I hope not. But it's, I think there is something about Germany's national history, which just makes them very cautious when it comes to how they manage their economics, how they manage their personal finances. And as a result, clinging to cash and rejecting everything else, living within your means, that type of attitude, a rather sober attitude, um, makes a lot of sense. And if you have a very sober attitude and you want to be smart about your money, stay within your means, as I said, then you almost automatically default to cash, even if you are in a very technologically advanced society, which I know India is also. So maybe that's what's going on. Right. Um, so when we asked you what you wanted to do after PhD, you said you wanted to get into fintech consultancy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my question is that, you know, nowadays we do see a lot of consultancy firms specializing in behavioral science. But mm -hmm. what other, you know, fields are there or what, what like, you know, how, could, how would you convince someone to take behavioral science? Like, what is there outside of research and academia? So keep in mind, behavioral science did start as an academic field. So it's not surprising there's still a lot of positions in academia because a lot of behavioral science, you know, it's a very, very new field. So it warrants a lot of research. But where there is research and where there's theoretical underpinnings, there's obviously also the desire to actually practically apply it and test it in the wild. You know, it's nice that something works in a lab. It's nice if something works on students. You know, the, the, the favorite sample of everyone, you know, undergrad students predominantly from the economics and the psychology department for some reason, but it needs to be tested, you know, with actual people, with a variety of people, um, with loads of different choice architectures and, and experience, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there is a growing demand for behavioral science applications and people who are either able to do that type of research within industry um, or who are simply able to apply it uh, on behalf of other firms who come to you with a problem being like, you know, maybe an HR team from a company comes to you and says like, hey, you know, something isn't going well with our workforce. Um, we, we've heard about behavioral science, you know, figuring out how people behave, being able to, you know, influence behavior. W would you mind solving this problem for us? Now, you can argue that this is still rather research-based, but this is as applied as behavioral science is currently going to get. Um, but yeah, you can you can apply behavioral science to a load of load of sectors. You know, um, there's government work, there's policy work, there's charity work, there's loads of nonprofit work, and yeah, there's there's also industry work. I mean, keep in mind that some of the of the biggest firms in the world, uh, I think most notably Ogilvy, um, as led by Rory Sutherland, you know, they they have got a massive behavioral science section so if, if although i have to admit behavioral science is a lot bigger in the west than it currently is anywhere else but there's loads of initiatives throughout the world that uh, that are up and coming or growing or have actually been very well established so that you know it, it's a growing field it's an emerging field but 
I, I don't think you're gonna have to be too worried about not being able to find a behavioral science job. A major chunk of the audience listening to this podcast will be students. In this context, mm-hmm. could you give us some useful tips regarding personal finance and something new about it that you've learned over the course of your education? Sure. I think so. There are a couple of things when it comes to personal finance. So, and this this is also why I say you no. Know, it's it's nice to take money seriously, but like don't don't take it too seriously. There's more important things to life than than money. Um, which is obviously, you can tell that that is said by someone from an incredibly privileged position. So if, if you're currently are in massive money troubles, maybe sort that first. But you have to have a very clear goal in mind from what you want from your money before you start doing any kind of self-testing and self-interventions. Um, so I, I think, you know, if, if you look at behavioral science, look at a behavioral change tools such as COMB or look at goal setting tools such as SMART. So SMART is one of my favorite tools. Uh, SMART is actually an abbreviation. It stands for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely or time-based. And that that is exactly all that you need to set up a successful goal, even when it comes to finances. So if, for example, you know, to get rich is an incredibly shit goal, sorry for the language, because it's really unspecific. Like, what, what does it mean to be rich? How long do you have to get rich? What are you willing to do to get rich? Um, you know, stuff like this. So if you want to set yourself any type of goal with regards to your money, with regards to your finances, be very, very specific. So how much money is rich? For example, do you want to own like a million dollars or do you want to be Jeff Bezos? You know, you know be, be a bit specific about it. Um, so that, that is specific. Now it has to be measurable. So measurable, actually, the, the lucky thing is that if you nail both S and T, so specific and timely, you should be able to make it measurable. So for example, I want to have $100,000 before I'm 30. That, that by default is a very specific goal. You've given yourself a timeline. Um, and as a result, it can be measured. You know, it, it can be measured. Uh, maybe even more specifically, you want to have $100,000 in stock or you want to have $100,000 specifically in a designated bank account. Um, you know, make, make it as specific and measurable as, as you can. So then, then you only have A and R left. So A is attainable. If you're currently about 100,000 in debt, <laughs> I think, you know, being able to... So for me, for example, if I say I want to have this before 30, I'm currently 25. Uh, so I, I need to, you know, uh, speed things up a bit to, to make sure that I can earn 100,000 over the next five years. Um, I can promise you a PhD doesn't, uh, doesn't pay that much. So it's, it's going to be a struggle. But for example, you know, is, is that then attainable for me to actually make that much money? Or is it attainable for me to become Jeff Bezos? I mean, it's, it's just not. So don't set yourself goals, which are very, very clearly not possible. Um, especially not if, if you're not willing to go morally corrupt for earning that amount of money. And R stands for uh, relevant, which is, you know, you say you want to become rich. But is being rich actually relevant to your life? Now, this might sound a bit odd as a question, but if you are already working three jobs, you barely have any time, you're now also in education, um, and it has become quite clear that within the next five years, your goals are to finish education properly, to be able to pay off your education, to still be mentally and physically healthy at the end of this journey, um, which probably will cost you uh, the majority of five years, is it then actually relevant to you to actually become rich? So this relevant has a large overlap with attainable. So I would argue that, you know, becoming rich, given the uh, the circumstances I've just described, you know, having multiple jobs already, being in debt, being in education, trying to have some mental health and physical health left at the end of it, to have a hundred thousand dollars in in the bank or having paid down a hundred thousands of debt or whatever is neither a relevant goal to your current life nor is it very attainable stuff like this so i think if there's anything i can get you from behavioral science 
which is not exclusive to personal finance at all. It's if you want something and if you are very clear about the goal you want to achieve, use the right tools to identify that goal, make a plan for achieving that goal. And through making that plan, building the strategies, you know, building the baby steps to get there, because getting to a hundred thousand pounds starts with just saving a single pound you know, or a dollar or whatever currency you want to work with. Like you have to start saving in general. Um, and there's loads of literature on how to do that. But, you know, smart or, or the comb B mechanism, they can be used for anything. They can be used for, you know, making more money, saving more money, losing more weight, actually exercising, um, being better at your studies. It's a behavioral change tool. So with regards to, you know, setting up any goal, make sure you apply the right tools, work through these tools, build yourself a plan, build yourself a strategy, because these are two different things, and and act accordingly. But don't make the mistake of setting yourself a goal and a plan, which you know, if you're being really honest with yourself, that is just going to fail. Like that behavioral science cannot fix what you can't do. Thank you so much for all that interesting advice. Um, one of my goals for the summer was actually to start investing, but mm-hmm. I'm really lazy about it. So I still haven't started yet. But yeah. Well, I guess the I'm main question to, with regards to that uh, one. So you also have to, mm-hmm. so this is, this is not smart. So this would be, um, so I mean, applying to, to your situation, you wouldn't have to apply the smart model. In your case, it's the comb B model where, you have the capability to get into investing, you have the opportunity to get into investing, but clearly with you, what what seems to be lacking is the actual motivation. So you have to figure out what, what is actually stopping you from getting into investing. Like you said, you're lazy about it, but most of the time it's not actually laziness. There's something else holding you back. So with Combi, for example, you would start identifying uh, barriers and, and frictions and find out why you're not doing a certain behavior. Combi is a really good model for that. Right. I think it's mostly got to do with my lack of financial knowledge. I think that's definitely a huge barrier to entry for me. So I really need to educate myself before I get into it. That is just, in general, very smart advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I started investing on the other hand. Yeah. And like, I think like one problem that I faced was like finding a finding the right entry point. But Mm -hmm. I think yeah, that's going to take some time and trials But I think that I'll figure that out. But the next question that I had for you was that you like you stated the different, you know, methods that one can use to practice personal finance. But what are like, how have you become a practitioner of the knowledge that you have gained over the course of your education? Like how, how have you applied it to your life? And has it been uh, beneficial? Also, oh, these are so. How do I apply my my own uh, findings to to my own life, or am I just a complete hypocrite? <laughs> That's a good question. So, I I have certain goals with regards to how much money I want to save, and then if I reach a, a certain goal with regards to savings, I shift it to investing. Now, I have to be honest. I'm really lucky in this respect, where my dad's an accountant. And my dad is actually very economically and financially knowledgeable. So I do a lot of these things through my dad. So I'm not going to claim that I know a lot about investing, where to move your money, et cetera, et cetera. I just got lucky that my dad knows how to do that. So he, he teaches me and he talks me through it uh, and he helps me out loads. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to claim that's just me being smart because that's just not true. But with regards to how I actually save up that money, um, I do actually have multiple jobs. If, if you can manage that, uh, I do think having multiple streams of income is is a good way of going about. Obviously, if this is if this goes at the expense of your mental and physical health, it's not utterly necessary. Then, then please don't do it. Another thing is there there is with regards to finance, there is so much information on in behavioral science. For example, as soon as you receive your wage, as soon as it gets transferred into your your bank account your mind anchors on that number that's now in there. The best thing for you to do is to pay down your debt first, move into savings, 
and then look at whatever is left on your bank balance, which is now a significantly lower number, trust me, and do the rest of your spending, so your discretionary spending, you know, your grocery shop, et cetera, et cetera, from that. So I think that that is the biggest tip. So this this thing or this, this phenomenon is known as save first. Um, so as soon as you get any money in, move it away to savings or you know, I, I would like to extend that, move it away to save to debt, then move it to bills, then move it to savings because debt and bills, you're going to have to pay them regardless. And it's better to pay down your debt and have no savings than it is to have debt and savings, which is known as the co-holding puzzle. And you don't want to co-hold. It's very, very expensive. So stuff like this. So and I think this this ties back very nicely to smart. You know, what, what is your goal for your money? If your goal for your money is to pay down your debt at a certain rate, then that is the first thing that you have to do as soon as money comes in. Don't don't let money tempt you into being like, oh, but I've got so much money now. I can treat myself. I deserve this. No, no, no. What you deserve is to be debt free what you deserve is to make yourself a very good plan on how you're going to deal with your money smartly so you're not going to be in the same position years from now kicking yourself in the head because you should have paid down your debt already that's what you deserve i'm not saying this is going to be a nice way of going about managing your money but it sure as hell is a good way of doing it it's just that in the heat of the moment no one likes to do this so another tip from that perspective, which which is very much going back to Lewinstein's old work on cold and hot states, if you're in a hot state, meaning you're being tempted, um, which is the moment that your money comes in on the bank account, don't make any financial decisions. Don't go shopping. Leave the car at home. Because being in a hot state means that your entire focus is on the here and now. Your present bias is like, wielding at like 150 percent it's not it's not good for you the way of getting around this is to pre-commit and automate whilst you're in a cold state so cold state is very much logical it's very much like you know you you hope you get your wage soon um and, and you're starting to make a proper plan for as soon as your wage comes in what are you going to do with it? But not for my, oh, it would be nice to go to the Bahamas, but more like I need to pay down my credit card debt. It's looking at me. It's only growing, um, but hopefully not. Or you have to pay down your student debt or whatever type of loan you have. Most people these days have some type of debt or loan outstanding. And then have an automated system within your account, whatever type of account that you use, that as soon as a certain amount of money or certain threshold is hit, that that money gets by direct debit or standing order or whatever gets moved into a different account so this can be a savings account or this can be debt repayment although i have to say i'm pretty sure um which i find very unfortunate but i'm pretty sure that many banks or uh, account current account providers they do not allow you to uh, shift money directly to credit card repayment. There seems to be something weird about that, but it would be really nice if you could set up a direct debit or a standing order of some sort. So as soon as you've got more than like a thousand uh, pounds on your current account, whatever more is on there, just gets shifted to your credit card debt or any other type of debt. Um, I think that would be ideal, but that system is currently not in place, which like I said, I find very unfortunate. All right. So thank you, Mel. I think that marks the end of our podcast. And I'm sure our listeners will benefit a lot from it. It's been a really fun podcast, I think, from everything from smart to, you know, saving first. It's been truly insightful. So thanks a lot for coming here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Yeah. And we wish to collaborate with you in the future as well. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you.